there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I'd like to talk to you about a peaceful home. Of course, this will be applicable to young parents, to families. It will also be applicable, I would hope, to all of you singles and all of you who have already raised your family and perhaps you're now widowed or divorced and you're living by yourself and you don't think this has anything to do with your life. I hope that you'll see that there is an application which is across the board. Wherever we live, we can make it a place of peace and refreshment. Some of you may just live in one room and you say, oh, well, I can't entertain there, and I, there's no, you wouldn't even call it a home. But if God is there, then it can be a place of refreshment and peace. And by way of illustration, I think of that dear Canadian mom of mine, Mom Cunningham, I called her. I'll tell you how I met her. I was a very lonely Bible school student in 1948. I had finished college and decided to get some Bible... T- Bible training at Prairie Bible Institute in Alberta, which is way out in a very bleak prairie. And I was feeling very much like a fish out of water. I think I was literally the only college graduate in that Bible school. Most of those kids, being Canadians, didn't really know what the word college means in the United States. And there were 32 pages of rules, which we were supposed to have memorized within the first 24 hours and we were responsible to keep those. And I just, there were a lot of reasons why I felt lonely, and I'm sure I wasn't by any means the only one that felt that way. But one day, to my surprise, there was a knock on the door. And when I opened the door, here was this beautiful old lady, her pink cheeks, beautiful face, smiling face, framed with pure white hair. And she had a wonderful Scottish accent. And she said, are you Betty Howard? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, dear Betty, you don't know me, but I know you, and I've been praying for you for weeks. And then she went on to invite me to come to her little apartment in the basement of one of the buildings down the street. Anytime I would like to have a cup of Scottish tea and a Scottish scone. And so you can be sure that there were many times when I made my way on a bitter winter afternoon down through the snowy streets to Mom Cunningham's little basement apartment. And she would open the scriptures with me. We would pray together. I would pour out my soul to her, and most of what my soul contained in those days was this desperate love for Jim Elliott, which I didn't think could ever possibly be requited. Jim was still a student at Wheaton, and we had said goodbye forever, we thought, And so Mom Cunningham was one of several who prayed Jim and me together. But I often think of the fact that here was this lady. She was not yet a widow. She was widowed shortly thereafter. But she had raised her four sons. Three of them had become missionaries. The other one was a minister. And now she was mothering somebody else's children. She was a very 
important spiritual mother in my life. If you've read my book, The Shaping of a Christian Family, you know that I didn't lack a spiritual mother in the biological sense. My own mother was certainly my most important and first spiritual mother. But Mom Cunningham was another one, one of the many. A third was Amy Carmichael. I've told you about her biography, A Chance to Die. It would be impossible for me to describe the importance of her influence in my life, even though I never met her in the flesh. I read her books, and she became a spiritual mother to me through her books. And one of the lines from her poetry, which meant a very great deal to me when I was single and was expecting to be single for the rest of my life, was this, If thy dear home be fuller, Lord, because a little emptier, my house on earth, what rich reward. If thy dear home be fuller, Lord, because a little emptier, my house on earth, what rich reward. And Amy Carmichael had been convinced by the time she was 20 years old that God wanted her to remain single for the rest of her life. She had, I guess, about three proposals. When I was writing her biography, it just drove me bananas that Amy was so terribly reticent about ever letting anybody know anything personal about her. But there were hints in there that made me believe that she probably had at least three proposals. She turned them all down. She remained single all her life. And she was not only a spiritual mother, but a physical mother in every way that a, physical, that a mother can be a physical mother other than having given birth physically. She was this mother to literally hundreds of Indian children whom God enabled her to rescue from temple prostitution. There were little girls who were being raised from babyhood in the temples for the purpose of living their lives as temple prostitutes, which meant that they were available to any man who came to worship in those Hindu temples. And then Amy discovered that there were boys, little boy babies, who were also commandeered by the temples to be used for homosexual purposes also for the Hindu priests and male worshipers who came there. So she became the mother to hundreds, perhaps thousands of these children. There was a time when there were 900 in the family at one time, counting 200 Indian and European workers. So I think of all of these women as being mothers in the sense that they provided a place of rest and refreshment and peace. Now, Mom Cunningham's place was a tiny, tiny, bleak little basement apartment. I mean, it was dark. It was so small that you were sitting kneecap to kneecap when you sat in the living room. And uh, everything was just jammed in there. But there were never, I never crossed my mind to think of it being anything but a haven and a home and a place of rest and refreshment for me. And I went back and saw her again after she had been widowed, and we had some wonderful times discussing the ways in which the Lord had met our needs, because, of course, by that time I, too, had not only waited five years for Jim Elliott, but had married him, and he had died in the interim. So home is meant to be a, meant to be a place of order, of quietness, of peace, and refreshment. My husband and I, just two weeks ago, were entertained in Spain by a single woman, 
who lived in a very small apartment, and her home was exactly that for us, and we gathered from stories that she told us and also from what other people said that this single woman's home was a place of peace and refreshment for other people. When we were in India working on Amy Carmichael's biography, I was given the privilege of sitting in her room at her table, surrounded by Amy Carmichael's books, her favorite authors, and that was just an overwhelming privilege. And over the door of her room was the name, The Room of Peace. They always called it The Room of Peace. And that was the place in which she had been confined for 20 years, unable to leave because of the accident that she had had that put her more or less in bed for the last 20 years of her life. So that's what a peaceful home is meant to be. Now, every family, I think, must long to have a peaceful home, but some of you would probably admit that that really isn't the first adjective that would spring to your lips in describing your home. My daughter would certainly say that their home is not always a place of peace, but it certainly is her aim and her prayer that the Lord will make it more and more a peaceful place, a place in which people not only love each other, but lay down their lives for each other and give themselves to each other. I believe that the principles that I'm going to try to articulate this afternoon are applicable to all the family of God, not just to a biological family. We are brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, and let me remind every woman here that we are meant to be mothers. Whether God gives us that privilege in the biological sense or only in the spiritual sense, we are created to be mothers. And every month, young women are reminded of exactly that. That is the physiological sign, and a visible sign of an invisible reality that God created us to be mothers. Our physical body is meant to be receiving. It is a receiver, it is a bearer, a carrier, a nurturer. That is what these visible signs should remind us of. So please try to think of the ways in which everything that I'm saying this afternoon applies to your situation, old, young, widowed, single, divorced, whatever, or a struggling mother with five or six children and another one on the way. If we never before sensed the need for mercy and grace and help in time of need, we sense this when we become mothers. Amy Carmichael's writings are full of her concern for her children. And please let me put in one more little parenthesis about Amy Carmichael here. In the back of the biography, 14 of her books are listed, which are still in print. If you find them in your Christian bookstore, I will be astonished. They are almost never in Christian bookstores, but they are in print, and your bookstore, if they're nice people, should certainly be willing to order them for you. And you can give them the list from the back of that book, which also has the publisher. They are worth their weight in gold. And there are poems in there, there are stories of her raising her children, just wonderful things which have helped to shape my thinking. I suppose if I were to be asked, what was the foundation on which your home 
was built, the home in which I was reared, I would certainly say it was on God himself. Over the front doorbell was a little brass plaque that said, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. Anyone who came to ring that doorbell knew before anybody opened the door what sort of people lived in that house. My father was certainly the head of our house. There was no question whatsoever about that. So this brings me to the first principle. I'm going to give you nine principles which will help to make a peaceful home. The first is the authority of Christ. If the parents have put themselves under the authority of Christ, they are then in a position to be receiving his wisdom and his grace and his help. We children were given to understand that we belonged to Christ as well, that we were his property, that we were redeemed and loved. My father took very seriously his responsibility as the head of the house, the priest in the home, the one whom God the one of whom God would require an accounting about how he had reared his children. We were read to, out of the Bible, twice a day as a family. My father had his own personal prayer and Bible reading time long before we got up, usually between 4.30 and 5 in the morning. My father was alone in his study, reading his Bible and praying, and after breakfast, we were all herded into the living room where we were read to after we had sung a hymn. We had a hymn book, and we went straight through the hymn book and sang the next hymn, whatever it was, and we didn't leave out, out any of the stanzas. And consequently, with no effort at all, we learned literally hundreds of hymns by heart. And little children, as you mothers have observed, have an incredible, almost miraculous ability to learn what they hear. That's how they learn their, mo their mother tongue. It doesn't have anything to do with IQ. Every little child learns to speak his mother tongue, unless, of course, he is mentally retarded, but the lowest possible IQ, short of real retardation, can learn absolutely perfectly his mother tongue, meaning that he can imitate precisely what his mother says. Now, of course, if her English is bad and she has a southern accent, now those two <laughs> things don't necessarily go together. <laughs> don't misunderstand me. The child will learn the bad English and or the southern accent. And my, I saw this in my, my grandchildren. They, they spoke Mississippi when they lived in Mississippi, and when they moved to California, Lars thought the worst thing that happened to them was that they lost their Mississippi accent, and they now speak California. But my, one of my nieces, my oldest brother's daughter, had a southern mother. My sister-in-law was from Charlotte, North Carolina, so my niece spoke southern to her mother and northern to her father, and didn't even know she was doing it. So take advantage, the point I'm making here is take advantage of this miraculous ability to memorize. Sing hymns with your children. Read the scriptures and read the same version. Be sure you choose one version for the family so that they hear the same words read over and over and over. We had nothing but the King James Version. We heard it read every morning 
And every evening, we read it ourselves when we get, learned to read. We heard it read in church, in Sunday school, in young people's meeting, and in public school every day. In public school in those days, it was a law that a chapter or a part from the Old Testament had to be read every morning, and we said the Lord's Prayer before we salute the flag. So we learned scriptures by the thousands. I'm getting a little ahead because this also fits under another heading here, but the authority of Christ is indicated by these aspects of our life growing up. Secondly is order. There will never be a peaceful home which is not an orderly home. First of all, the order of husband and wife. And you can find that in Ephesians 5. We haven't got time to elaborate on that. I've written two books on the subject of masculinity and femininity. The first is called The Mark of a Man. The second is called Let Me Be a Woman. And in these, I've tried to describe the differences between men and women, which are not biological. There are some theological differences. There are some very important differences, far more important than anatomical trivialities. And it was way back in the Garden of Eden that Eve made a bid for equality, and this whole notion of equality has infected our thinking as Christians. God did not create us, men and women, to be equal and interchangeable. He created us to be complementary, each with special gifts, special functions, which are to be offered to the other person. There was never any discussion that I can recall in our home about who was the head of the house because my parents knew the Bible and knew that there was very clear instruction there. They never had any arguments whatsoever about it. In fact, as I was writing my book, The Shaping of a Christian Family, I checked with my brothers and my sister, do any of you remember ever hearing our parents have an argument? Not one of us could remember anything like that. I said, does anybody remember them ever raising their voices? None of us could think of that. Same thing when I came to trying to answer people's questions. So often I'm asked by the parents of teenagers, what did your parents do for punishments when you reached teenage? I couldn't think of a thing, so I asked my brothers and my sister. They couldn't think of anything either. And my, brothers, my brother Tom's answer, he said, well, I think it's just a clear indication of the principles and how well they worked, because long before we reached teenage, we knew that our parents meant exactly what they said. So there weren't punishments by that time. We had had all the spankings that we wanted, and a whole lot more, and I assume we'd had all the ones that we needed, and therefore my parents had our respect by that time. But order starts with the husband and the wife, the husband being the head at his desk, the buck stops, not at the wife's. And that's such a relief to me. Now, you're not looking at a woman who loves submission. I was not born with the least inkling or the least aptitude for submission. May I see the hands of those of you who were born submissive? <laughs> How many of you were born with a gentle and quiet spirit? You see, I really don't think that these things come naturally to us, but this is God's order. Wives, submit to your husbands because they're so smart. Is that what it says? Because they're always right. Because they're more spiritual. 
No, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife. Never mind whether you, he feels like it or whether you like the idea or whether he has earned it or whether he deserves it or whether you want to offer him the gift of being your head. He is the head. That's it. Case closed. And my parents accepted that very gladly and happily. Now, if there is order under God, there is going to be a visible evidence of order in the home. There's a beautiful hymn that says, Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Does your ordered life give testimony to the beauty of God's peace? It should. We need to pray that it will. Well, if you walked into our home, most of the time, I don't think you would have realized that there were six children there. For one thing, we were taught to be quiet. And that doesn't mean we were suppressed. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of uproarious laughter. But we were taught to be thoughtful about other people. If daddy was studying, if mother had a headache, if a baby was asleep, we always were supposed to think of those things first before we played rowdy games or thundered up and down the stairs. We were taught never to shout from one room to another. If we wanted to speak to somebody, we had to go to that room. We were not to slam doors. If we slammed doors, we were asked very nicely to please walk out of the room and come back into the room properly. And that was a very hard lesson in the summertime when the front door was wide open and the screen door had a spring on it. And we were forever slamming that screen door. And I don't know how many dozens of times I had to be asked to please come back in the house and go out and close the door properly. But those things make for peace and harmony. Punctuality was a point of doctrine with my father. And this is a matter of order. It comes under the heading of order. There could be no flexibility at all in our morning schedule because my father had to get a, a commuter train. That commuter train was at 7.49 or something like that. It was not 7.49 and a half, but 7.49. There was absolutely no flexibility. So this meant if we were going to have family prayers peacefully and quietly, then we had to have breakfast peacefully and quietly before that, which meant we had to be dressed and in our right minds peacefully and quietly before breakfast time. So all of these things had to start at a certain time and end at a certain time. And my father absolutely insisted that we were going to have a quiet and leisurely breakfast. Six children, a quiet and leisurely breakfast. We did it. And people say to me, oh, well, you could never do that nowadays. And I say, you couldn't do it then either. You could never do it without discipline and sacrifice on the part of the parents. And they were disciplined and they were sacrificial. So we were taught punctuality. Now, the reason it was a point of doctrine was not only because my father had to make the commuter train. A much more important reason was my father said, if you are late, you are stealing the most precious commodity that belongs to somebody else, which is time. Think about that. Don't steal other people's time. Another sign 
of the order was that there was a place for everything and theoretically everything was in its place. Now I'm not telling you that the Howard family was perfect, not by a long shot, but it was our parents' desire that we would learn to be disciplined in every area of our lives. And one of the areas was putting things away. When we came in the, in the front door after school, our temptation was to fling the books onto a bench that was there in the hall or fling them onto the floor and race out to the kitchen to see if there were cookies and milk or anything and then out the back door, slam the door. And of course that happened many times, but when it happened, we were brought back in, we were corrected. Where do the school books go? Well, put them there. And if you don't have a place for everything, if your children don't put things in their places because there isn't a place, then I would suggest two things. Either you need to reorganize, it's your fault if there isn't a place for everything, or you need to get rid of a lot of things. Maybe you need to simplify your life. So give up the things that take the room that you need and make sure that your children understand that there is a place for everything. Where do you keep the scotch tape? Where do you keep the thumbtacks? Where do you keep the pencils? We knew exactly where they were supposed to be, and that's where they were to be put back. Number three, the authority of the word. This, I think, is of paramount importance, and I think when I uh, observe young parents on planes, in airports, in churches, in neighborhoods, who are utterly helpless when it comes to disciplining their children. Usually, the problem is very evident. They have never established the authority of the word, of their word. Now, as I've already said, my parents were under the authority of God's word, and we were taught, we were fed continually the word of God. And it's been much easier for me to believe that God means exactly what he says because my parents meant exactly what they said. And this authority must be established very early. I would, not go, I would go so far as to say that the authority of the word begins when you bring that baby home from the hospital or wherever he was born. And he begins to know the sound of your voice and to read the tone of your voice and don't think that a two-week-old baby doesn't know the difference between an angry voice and a quiet, loving voice. And he knows that he can use his voice in ways which will get what he wants if you're not a very wise mother. So start early, but I'm not going to try to go into the specifics of how you teach an infant in the crib. That gets a little complicated, but I do think that, that, that the tone of your voice and your managing to keep control over yourself makes a difference to that baby, and he knows that, he understands it. Children are always way ahead in understanding of what their parents think. But the crucial point is when that child begins to crawl. As soon as he gets to the point where he can get into things that, he doesn't, that he's not supposed to get into, there comes the acid test. Now I'll tell you about my experience with my one and only child. Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott and I were living in a very civilized house that Jim had built for us in the jungle. We actually had a floor and walls and some furniture and a roof. And among the furniture was a bookcase and we had some very precious books. We didn't have very many books and they were all very precious to us. Jim and I were fanatics about taking care of books. 
And so when Valerie reached about seven or eight months, I've forgotten which, she began looking at those books over there, something that she could get her little hands on. And one day when we were all three in the living room, she headed quite deliberately and determinedly for the bookcase, looking at us as though she already knew that that was something she wasn't supposed to touch. I don't remember that we'd said anything to her about it. But as she approached the bookcase and put her little finger out toward the books, Jim spoke her name very quietly in a normal tone of voice. He said, Valerie, and she turned around and looked at him over her shoulder. He nailed her with his eyes, and he said, no. And very deliberately, she turned around, and she pulled that book out of the bookcase, and she looked around again, whereupon she got a spanking. Now, Jim did not speak twice. And that was lesson one for that child, that what her parents said they meant the first time. He spoke in a normal tone of voice. He didn't scream at her. The most crucial thing was that he spoke her name, and he was sure that he had her attention because he looked her straight in the eye. Now, I see these parents, and my heart goes out to them. I just want to go up and say there is a better way. There is a way to teach the child to do what you say. So Valerie got a spanking. As far as I remember, that was the only spanking she ever got from Jim. She was seven or eight months old. He died when she was ten months old. But she never touched that bookcase again. Now let me tell you, the next day, she started for it. And either I or Jim, I don't remember if we were both there at the moment, but we just said, Valerie, no. And she turned around and crawled away as if she'd never had any intention of touching those books over there. <laughs> But we started early. We started the minute she was crawling around. You're, she's going to get into something on the coffee table, perhaps. Now, I would recommend you put something on the coffee table, not your $500 Royal Doulton figurine, but something that you do not want the child to touch. Just make it a cheap anything or other. But just let, it, let the child know that this is not to be touched. And, of course, the minute the child touches, then it's time for spanking. And in here, I have to say, unfortunately, we have to be sure we understand these things. We're not talking about child abuse when we talk about a spanking. We're talking about a controlled parent controlling her child in a controlled way because she loves him. We're not talking about an angry parent out of control, who has screamed ten times at this child, the child will never do it, it's such a bad kid, and so the parent by this time is so furious, he grabs the child, and very likely that's when abuse happens. Now what my mother taught us, taught all of us, which I think we all used in raising our own children, was the use of a little switch, just a little thin branch off the bush in the backyard, which was kept over the door in every room of the house. We knew that that switch was handy. So when mother or daddy spoke to us, hardly ever was the switch used after the first few times because all they had to do was to raise their eyes to the top of the door, and we leaped, we jumped to obedience. You say no, look the child in the eye, speak his name, speak in a normal tone of voice, use the word no. And if the child goes ahead and deliberately does the thing, he then gets a spanking. And my friend Barb Tompkins 
taught her children, if you do what I have just told you not to do, in other words, if you touch the book, you are choosing a spanking. You have a choice. You are choosing a spanking. And so the child touches the book, and you take the child on your lap and say, I see that you have chosen a spanking, and you administer the spanking, and then you say, Katie, I love you. That's why I spanked you. Now, the child doesn't believe that. <laughs> but you have to keep saying it, and someday he will know that that's true. And when you become a parent, you know that what your mother said to you, this hurts me worse than it hurts you, which you didn't believe, is true. The authority of the word, it is most crucial. I was sitting in an airport one day waiting for the baggage to come off the carousel, and there was a young mother sitting next to me, and Jennifer, her two-year-old, was climbing on the carousel. They hadn't turned it on yet, but the mother was sitting there screaming, Jennifer, get off that! Jennifer, would you come here? Jennifer, come here! Jennifer, I said come here! You know, Jennifer was utterly oblivious. She was not paying the slightest bit of attention. So what happens? The mother gets up, runs over there, grabs Jennifer, yanks her up, takes her back, plunks her down, and she says, sit here now. Don't you dare go back over there. And 90 seconds later, Jennifer's on the carousel again. And so this thing is repeated. Jennifer already knows that her mother, number one, does not mean what she says at all, let alone the first time or the tenth time. Number two, that her mother will accomplish what Jennifer doesn't want to do. She will go over and physically remove her when she really wants her to get off. So Jennifer doesn't have to do one single thing. That's not the way it should work. Number, three, number four is prayer. And prayer should be a daily offering for your children. My parents began not only their own, they had their own personal devotions when they got married. I mean, they'd been having them, of course, before they were married and continued to have their own private time. But then they had a special prayer time every Saturday evening for the children that they hoped God would give them. And throughout their lives, they kept up that Saturday evening prayer meeting. There were, of course, other times when the two of them got together to pray, but I know for sure that we all prayed twice a day together, the whole family. And teach your children to thank God, to say, I'm sorry, and to say, please help. Those are three very simple little prayers that you can teach your two-year-old or even earlier. Thank God and teach him that he can thank God for everything in his life. And teach him to pray for other people. Please help so-and-so. Please help me. And I'm sorry. Teach him to repent. Number five, discipline begins with self-discipline. Now, I've already told you the basic principles of disciplining the child. It won't work unless you are a disciplined person. If you have not got the courage to stick with what you've said, your child will know that. And he will know that he does not need to obey. And he can't really trust your word. And I don't think there's anything worse that you can do to your child than to break promises. I think that's a terrible thing to do to a little child, whether it's the promise of a spanking 
if he doesn't do what you asked him to do, or the promise of a treat that he does want. Don't make any empty threats or empty promises. If you say, if you do that, I'm going to give you a spanking, you better give him the spanking. And that takes self-discipline. Now, for a mother to teach her two-year-old to pick up his clothes takes a whole lot longer than it does for the mother to pick up the clothes, doesn't it? But for how long is it going to be easier? If you don't teach the two-year-old to pick up the clothes, it's going to be more difficult when he's three years old, much more difficult when he's 10 years old, and it's going to be impossible by the time he's 13 and 16. I have parents of teenagers saying to me, how do we teach our teenagers discipline? Well, all I can say is you've started about 12 years too late, 15, 16 years too late. So it begins with you. Now, there are some people here that are already saying, I've blown it. It's a mess. My house is not peaceful. My children do not respect my word. He's already six years old. What do I do now? And I would say my first suggestion would be that you go home this afternoon, tonight, or whenever, and you take their, your children or that child and you sit them down and say, your mother has learned something. <laughs> and I have to tell you that I have made some very big mistakes, and this is one of them, and from now on, this is the way we're going to do it. And I want you to understand that I'm dead serious, and when I speak to you, I'm serious, and I'm only going to speak to you once, and if you don't do it, then so-and-so. You have to start over, and it will be more difficult, of course. But it's not impossible. Please don't anybody go out of here and despair and think, oh, all those principles Elizabeth Elliot gave, forget it. I wish I'd never gone to the conference. I can't do it. it. Isaiah 50, verse 7 says, the Lord God will help me. Now, if you don't get anything else out of this conference, put that down in your notebook. The Lord God will help me. Isaiah 50, verse 7. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He will help you but you've got to pray. Number six is courtesy. Table manners are simple ways of being thoughtful about other people. Well, what's putting your elbows on the table got to do with thoughtfulness for other people? Well, have you ever been in a restaurant and looked at a family sitting around the table where everybody's like this, and they're shoveling the food in with maybe both hands, and you think how awful it looks, but if anybody at that table were to look around and think how awful it looks, then you'd think, you know, there is something nicer than that. It doesn't have to be that way. But passing the butter to daddy first is a very fundamental lesson in unselfishness. Daddy, you first, after me. You are more important than I am. If there are four children at the table and three cookies left, what do you do? Perhaps one, the, the oldest child, has already learned by this time courtesy, and he offers it to the younger children. All of these things are little tiny ways of saying, my life for yours. It's sacrifice. It's self-giving. It's giving up your right to yourself. Quietness is courtesy. Thoughtfulness. Picking up your clothes. Who wants to walk into a living room where there's jackets on the floor and newspapers on the sofa and school books, who knows where, and the laundry piled up on the dining room table? My thoughtfulness for other people, so that it, it looks nice, it seems ordered and peaceful. 
makes a big difference. And of course, you mothers are responsible to teach your children to do these things for the sake of the whole family. It's not just because you're up there waving a big stick. It's for the sake of the whole family. It's so everybody can enjoy the peacefulness and the order of the home. Well, my husband has already given me the five-minute signal, and I've got three points left. I'll give them to you, and you can work on them yourself. Number seven is hospitality. That is a command in Scripture. Use hospitality without wishing you hadn't got to. That's what Philip's translation says. My parents were never rich. We lived, I remember growing up in the Depression. My mother could hardly ever add anything to the menu because we were having company. I don't remember that she ever did. We ate a lot of macaroni and cheese and canned fruit and bought in cookies. We, my mother never knew how to bake cookies. She grew up in a home where they had two cooks and a butler, so she didn't know which side of the frying pan was up when she got married. And, uh, she did a good job with ordinary, necessary food, but we didn't get around to the other stuff. But she w was always ready to put another place on the table and make up the guest room bed. And for that, I'm very grateful because we children were greatly blessed by all the great saints of God that came through our home, missionaries and other people. Number eight is work, and number nine is the responsible use of God's gifts. And I would say about the word work, you must teach your children to work and start when they're very small. A little child, two years old, can take responsibility to empty the wastebaskets, for example. And if you empty them because he didn't, you're teaching him that, he, that you will pick up whatever he doesn't bother to do. Don't teach him that. Teach him that if he doesn't empty those three wastebaskets, those three wastebaskets are not going to get emptied. It is his job. You can teach a little child, two or three years old, to take the silverware basket out of the dishwasher and climb up on a little stool or a chair and put the silverware in the right places in the drawer. There are all kinds of things a little child can do. Pick up his own toys, pick up his own clothes, help you to sort the laundry, help you to fold the diapers. And number nine, the responsible use of God's gifts, among which are money, water, lights, food, clothes. These are gifts from God to be taken seriously, carefully, and used responsibly. It just kills me when I see young kids just turn on the hot water full blast and just pay absolutely no attention to it. Turn on the cold water full blast and brush their teeth for five minutes. Turn the water off. Save your money. Take care of your possessions. If the child leaves his bicycle out, I think he shouldn't be allowed to ride the bicycle for maybe a week. If he leaves his roller skates on the front porch, he doesn't get to use the roller skates for a while. Marge Saint Vanderpoy, one of the widows, took away any item of clothing that she found out of place. And one time her daughter Kathy had bought a new dress, and she was planning to wear that to a party, but that dress was found in the wrong place. Just before the party happened, her mother took it away and she could not wear that dress to the party. I don't think Kathy ever forgot that lesson. Lights, turn the lights off. Never waste food, and be careful of your clothes, which brings me to the question of how many loads of laundry do you really need to do? Okay, that was the signal for stop, but I think you, you've gotten all the points now, and I really do want to ask that question. 
One mother of three children told me that she did 17 loads of laundry per week. I'm glad to hear some groans here because I know a lot of people that think, well, 17, let's see, that's not too many. That's just a little bit more than three per person in the family. I talked to Valerie about this, and I said, how does, this, how does this happen? How can it be possible? And she said, I'll tell you what. one of the things I know. She said, some of my friends do not teach their children that a thing can be worn twice. So if they have occasion to change their clothes two or three times in a day because of school and play and maybe going out in the evening, it's much easier to drop them into the clothes basket than it is to hang them up in the closet. So think about that one. Well, I hope that some of the things you've been hearing this weekend have, are going to work for you, that you will see that the Christian life is practical, that Jesus Christ should make a difference in your life. Now I'd like you just to bow your heads. I want to pray. And ask yourself, first of all, what kind of a difference is Jesus making in my life? I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.